The Hauntings at Frother, Part 1 of 3 The Story of Thorgunna After weeks on board ship, first sailing across the ocean, then waiting half the summer for a favourable wind to cross the firth, Thorgunna found that her legs had forgotten how to walk on land when she finally felt it under her feet again. It was a strange land at that. The sand on the beach was black, and although the late summer sun was shining, she could see a huge mountain covered in ice in the distance. The wind whipped her still dark red hair around her face and stung her cheeks, but it was a relief to feel in charge of her own movements again, or almost in charge anyway. A little bit of walking would get her legs and feet back in order. The settlement where the ship had finally docked bore the truly bizarre name of Breakfastness, but people seemed to have come from all around to meet the newcomers. Thorgunna pulled her patterned wool cloak around her protectively, watching the men who were helping her to handle her belongings. Hello, came a voice from behind her. Since Thorgunna didn't know anyone on this island, she ignored it. But, hello, came the voice again. Thorgunna turned. A beautiful, fair-haired woman was standing not far away, watching the men help Thorgunna with her belongings, one big locked trunk and a smaller chest. Hello, said Thorgunna. She nodded awkwardly towards the woman and moved to turn away. Are you Thorgunna from the South Islands? asked the woman before she could escape. Yes, said Thorgunna. The men had set down her trunks and she was wondering where to go and how to get them transported to wherever she might end up. The men have talked of you, said the strange woman bluntly. All the while your ship was stranded off the reef, the messengers told us of the wonderful things you have with you, clothing and jewellery and even, she leaned forward and dropped into a mock whisper, silk sheets. Is it true? The woman eyed the trunk hungrily. I'm sorry, said Thorgunna, moving in front of the trunk. You have an advantage over me. I don't know your name. My name is Thurid, said the woman, finally tearing her eyes away from the trunk to look Thorgunna in the eyes. My husband, Thorod, is the chief of our settlement at Frother by the river, as my previous husband was before him. She drew herself tall and stood as if she towered over Thorgunna, though in fact she was at least a head shorter in height. My husband has been on great trading journeys to Ireland, but I have never left this island, and I heard that you had rare treasures not often seen here. I can see you are a woman of wealth, she added, taking Thorgunna's hand and holding up her two gold rings, one North made, one English. My two wedding rings, said Thorgunna shortly, taking her hand away. She could see curiosity in the other woman's eyes and quickly changed the subject. And it is true, I do have silk sheets with me. I would love to just take a look if I could. Thurid's eyes were eager and her face lit up at just the thought. Thorgunna shuffled her feet uncomfortably. This isn't really the best place, she started. If I were to be invited to a feast, then of course I should come and wear some of my best clothes and jewellery and then you could see them. I would be happy to join you for a meal if I'm able to come to your home. Where are you going to? asked Thurid. Perhaps we can travel together. It's rough land around here, and you'll need help with those trunks. Thorgunna slumped a little. In all honesty, I'm not sure where I'm going, she said. I thought I would start by trying to find accommodation here. 
In that case, you must come and stay with us, cried Thurid. Our housecarls can help with your things, and you must come and live with Thorod and me, and our son Kirtan at Frother. And then you will have plenty of time to share your beautiful things with us. Thorgunna bristled at the word share and squared her shoulders. I should warn you, my treasures are not for sale, she said. Oh, of course, of course, said Thurid, already motioning to her housecarls to come and lift Thorgunna's trunks. I won't pay too high a rent, Thorgunna continued. I may be advanced in years, but I'm hale and healthy and strong. She flexed her not inconsiderable muscles at the young man stooping past her to lift the smaller chest. And I work well and long hours. Thurid snorted a little. Well, the hours will vary, she said, as perhaps you haven't heard that the days last only a few hours around Yuletide in this country. But I take the point. Thugunna nodded and continued. I will do no wet work, she said, and I will tell you how much I will pay you. I will consider my own wealth and the work I have done and come to a fair price. She raised her chin a little, expecting a fight, but got none. Thurid's housecarls were already carrying away her trunks. Of course, of course, said Thurid, beckoning her over and taking her by the arm. Now come, I will take you to your new home. The settlement at Frother by the river was small, just thirty able-bodied youths and adults, led by Thurid's husband, Thorod. There was a small church, but no priest. Christ's faith had only just been made law in the land, Thurid explained, and there was a shortage. Her own brother was a priest further east at Holyfell, and there was an important church some distance to the southeast at Scarlaholt. Thorgunna crossed herself a little nervously. She had not realised Christianity was so new to this northern island. Thorod and Thurid's hall was of a good size, and Thurid showed Thorgunna to a warm space in the inner part of the building. At this point, Thorgunna could no longer put it off, and was forced to open her trunks and unpack her belongings. As she pulled out her bedgear and started to arrange it, she found this was made more difficult by Thurid grabbing each item as she took it out and pawing at it. Her soft bedroll, her yellow pillow, her English linen undersheet and blood-red silken cover sheet all were run through Thurid's greedy hands before she could get them settled. "'How much?' asked Thurid. "'I beg your pardon?' "'How much do you want for the lot? All your bedgear?' Thurid wanted to know. "'For bedroll, pillow, sheets, everything.' I told you, it is not for sale, said Thorgunna. She moved back. Perhaps this was not a good place to stay. She started to fold up the sheets, considering packing them away again entirely. At that moment, two children came screaming through the hall, playing. A tiny girl carrying a tiny wooden sword and a young boy in his early teens, chasing her, but being careful not to catch her. Ah, I'm going to get you, he shouted, laughing. Kirtan, Kirtan, come here, called Thurid. The girl ran off out of the hall, but the boy came over to join them. This is my son, Kirtan, said Thurid. And here, she looked towards the door, smiling as a weather-beaten man entered, here is my husband, Thorod. Thurid stood up to greet her husband, who had apparently just returned from a fishing trip with a hug, and Kirtan allowed his father to hug him. Both of you, come and meet our new guest, Thorgunna of the South Islands, said Thurid. She'll be staying with us for a while and helping us with the harvest. This giant can't be my son, said Thorod laughing as he reached over to ruffle Kirtan's hair while the lanky boy squirmed. He looks more like to be related to you, good woman Thorgunna. He smiled again and he and the boy both had the same dimple in their right cheeks as they grinned. Welcome, good wife, to our home.
Thorgunna smiled politely in return and went back to setting out her bedgear. It was cold and wet outside, and she didn't know anyone in this country. It didn't seem a good idea to reject hospitality from such friendly people. It's nice bedgear, though not quite as fantastically wonderful as the men made out. You'd have thought it came from the Celtic fairies, the way they were talking. I'll give you a good price for it, said Thurid, returning to her favourite subject. It is not for sale, said Thorgunna shortly. I am grateful to you for a place in your household, and I like you and your family, but I will not sleep on straw for you. Thurid said nothing, but withdrew silently to her own straw bed pallet at the far end of the hall. Summer turned to autumn, and Fogunna kept to herself as much as possible. She's a strange one, that woman, said Thorgrima Witchface, as she sat around the fire with her husband, Thorir Woodenleg, and with Thurid. Goodman Thorir, I think I hear the sea telling the rain clouds they are wet, said Thurid to Thorir with a smile. Oh, very well, said Thorgrima, tapping her friend on the leg playfully. I take your point, Thurid, they don't call me Witchface for nothing. But you can say this for me, I talk to folk, when they'll talk to me. Thurid nodded. She is a quiet one, she said, except with Kirtan. She's always trying to make friends with him, but she talks to him as a boy and he doesn't like it. He thinks he is a man now. All three smiled to themselves and watched Kirtan trying to drink his beer too quickly on the other side of the fire for a moment or two. Unrecognisable from only six months earlier, he was now one of the tallest of the men, matched in height only by Thorgunna herself, and a few wispy hairs had appeared on his chin. His laugh was almost indistinguishable from the other men, aside from the occasional high-pitched squeak. She's so weird about her things, too, added Thurid, returning to the subject of the new arrival. She made her own rake for the hay, and she won't let anyone else touch it, only her. As if anyone could care so much about a rake. I wonder what's so special about it, said Thorgrima. Do you think it's enchanted in some way? <sighs> I don't believe in enchantment, said Thurid. And she's very devout, goes to church every morning, even though there is no priest there. But you are the witch, aren't you, Thorgrima Witchface? You should know. I would have to look at it, said Thorgrima. Perhaps it's just well made. Is it true she sleeps under a silken sheet, asked Thorir. Thurid nodded yes. Blood red in colour, too, and her undersheet is linen. Her bedroll is the softest I've ever come across. Oh, you've slept on it then, said Thorir with a glint in his eye. No, laughed Thurid, but I tried it out once while she was busy with the weaving. I never wanted to get up. Their conversation was cut short when Thorod stood up to make an announcement. The air is clear tonight, he said, and tomorrow will be a good drying day. Everyone is to rise with the sun. The men will gather and rick the hay while the women spread it. Ugh, that will be a long day out in the sun surrounded by people, said Thorgrima. I wonder who will dislike it the most, me or Thorgunna? Just don't touch her rake, laughed Thorir a little too loudly. Thorgunna looked up sharply at the group, but said nothing. The next day did indeed dawn bright and clear. There was little wind and not a cloud in the sky, and most of the settlers were thoroughly enjoying themselves, talking and laughing together as they worked. Thorgunna worked well, but a little apart from everyone else, guarding her rake carefully. She would go nowhere without it, to make sure no one else handled it. About three hours after noon, a black cloud appeared from the north. 
It covered the sun, and suddenly the air was cold and wintry. Everyone pulled their clothing around themselves, and Faguna ran inside briefly to fetch her patterned cloak. Rain is coming, announced Thorod. Rake up the hay, everyone! Where is my rake? asked Thorgunna, re-emerging from the hall. Oh, I'm sorry, mine broke, so I just borrowed it for a moment, said Thorgrima, holding it out to the older woman. Thorgunna looked down into the witch-face's eyes. I have made it clear, none are to touch my rake, she said. It's just a rake, insisted Thorgrima. I only borrowed it for a moment. Here, have it back. No, said Thorgunna, drawing herself up to her full height. I asked a simple thing. Only that people should leave my belongings alone. Yes, it is just a rake, but it is my rake. I shall not be raking any hay today. Good wife Thorgunna, there is rain in that cloud. You must rake the hay, said Thorod. I must do nothing. It has been clear all day. I'm sure it will not rain, replied Thorgunna. And she stubbornly continued to spread the hay while everyone else raked and gathered it. Abruptly, there was a roll of thunder. The sky opened and rain bucketed down on the settlement. Big fat droplets fell so thickly that everyone's clothes were soaked through in minutes and all the hay that was spread out was drenched. Oh, a thunderplump, cried Thurid, running for shelter. This is no ordinary thunderplump, said Thorod, holding a hand uselessly over his head. Look, see the colour of the water? That's not water, cried Thorgrima in horror. It's blood. What magic is this? The spread hay was quickly darkening into first bright red, then dark brown, as huge droplets of blood fell on everything. Thorgunna, who had stayed out spreading the hay while the others turned towards shelter, was completely soaked. Blood poured through her hair and soaked through her clothes until her cloak matched her dark red curls. She ran for shelter, but by the time she got there she looked like a slaughtered animal. The whole community watched in horror until a few minutes later, just as suddenly as it had started, the shower stopped, the cloud disappeared, and the sun came out again. Well, there is nothing for it, said Thorod, but to leave the hay to dry. And so they left the spread hay out, and all of the blood dried relatively quickly. All of it, except what had fallen on the hay Thorgunna spread. Neither that nor her rake would dry at all even though the sun was fairly strong for the rest of the day. "'What does it mean?' said Thurid to Thorgunna. "'Nothing good, that's for sure,' said Thorgunna, shivering. Thorgunna's shivering would not stop, and by the time everyone sat down to their evening meal around the fire, she had turned pale. She started to cough and her throat closed up, and she would eat nothing all evening. The fire had barely died down when she left the fireside, took off her bloodied clothes and fell onto her mattress without even bothering to pull the silken sheet over herself. I don't like this, said Thorod, draping his own warm cloak over her shivering form. Thurid said nothing, but quietly folded the silk sheet, stroking it possessively before retiring to her own straw bed. Thorod watched over Thorgunna all night, but by morning her shivering was more violent than ever, and she was barely able to tell him what she needed in a raspy voice. "'I think this is the last sickness for me, Goodman Thorod,' she said. "'I have some requests to make of you. "'I would advise you to listen carefully and follow them absolutely, "'without the smallest deviation. 
You've seen for yourself the results if you do not. She gestured at the pile of bloody clothes lying by the bedroll. I will do as you ask, good wife Thorgunna, said Thorod. What do you need? Bear my body to the church at Scalaholt, said Thorgunna. I know it is a long way, but there there will be priests to sing over my body, and I sense that one day it will be a great and holy sight. As payment you may take whatever of my goods you want, including this ring. And here she took the north-made ring of twisted gold from her finger and pressed it into Thorod's hand. Thurid may have my patent cloak, which I know she envies and be content with that. But no one must have my bedgear. All of this, and she gestured to her bedroll pillow and two sheets, all of this must be burnt. All of it. And I would like to keep this ring. She lifted her hand to display the English ring, a gold band with runes carved around it, to be buried with me. Thorod nodded. It shall be done, he said. Burn the bedgear, rasped Thorgunna again. I know Thurid wants it, and I'm not saying this to be mean or to deny her out of spite. I like your family, though I may not say it much. But the bedgear is dangerous and will bring trouble to any that touch it. You must burn it all. There will be no end of trouble for you and the whole settlement. Thorod nodded again, and Thorgunna lay back exhausted on her soft pillow. She did not speak much afterwards, and within a few days she had died. Must we carry this corpse all the way to Scala Holt? complained Thorough Wooden Leg as they wrapped the body in linen and placed it in a chest. I will not ask you to come, said Thorod. It will be a rough journey at this time of year. I'll take my house cars, they are young and strong. But yes, we must. I promised the woman as she was dying and I will not break that promise. Besides, she has paid us handsomely in goods. Her wealth was even greater than we realised. He smiled and put down the new silver goblet he had found in the bottom of Thorgona's trunk. She will never know if you take the payment without doing the job, grumbled Thorir, but he left Thorod to it. Thurid was not so easily put off. You're not really going to burn that beautiful bedgear, are you, she said. Even the scarlet silk sheet? Even the scarlet silk sheet, confirmed Thorod. Those were Thorgunna's instructions. Husband, said Thurid in a wheedling tone, throwing her arms around Thorod's neck and nuzzling his ear. These are precious things. We cannot just burn something so beautiful or so valuable. It was her strictest request, said Thorod. We cannot ignore the wishes of a dying woman. All right, all right, said Thurid. How about this? We burn just the pillow and the bedroll. After all, she didn't even use the silk sheet on those last few nights. The undersheet is such a fine thing, it would be an insult to its makers to burn it. Burn the pillow and the bedroll, and you will have fulfilled her request. But let me have the use of her sheets. Thorid was impatient to get going with the journey to Scalaholt, and he had had enough of Thorid's whining by this point. She had spoken of nothing else since the night Thorgunna first fell sick. Fine, he said. I'll burn just the pillow and the bedroll. But I don't like this, Thurid. If anything bad comes of it, it will be your fault. Course, of course, said Thurid, happily taking the sheets to her own bed, and rather regretting not pushing for the bedroll as well. 
Thorod took several strong men and good horses with him, but the journey to Skullaholt was a long one, and autumn was wearing on. Every day they had less light to travel by, and the sky became darker even in the short hours of daylight, and the wind got colder. After crossing huge swathes of land covered in black rocks, where steam seemed to escape the very depths of hell and spurt out of the earth, passing around the great rivers of ice coming down from the mountains, and navigating waterfalls where the chest carrying Thorgunna's corpse was tumbled about and nearly came to grief several times, they were nearing the settlement of Neverness, when they were caught in a storm while trying to cross a deep river. This was no short, sharp thunderplump. The rain fell hard and cold for hours, the wind threatened to blow them off their horses, and as they struggled through the river, the corpse chest at one point broke free and was almost carried away in the current. Two of Thorod's housecars plunged in after it and grabbed it, while another two had to take hold of them to avoid all four being swept away. When at last they emerged, soaked and shivering, onto the far bank, they knew they could not possibly travel any further, and turned into the settlement to look for lodging. They went to the great hall and to the fire to approach the local chief, but he was having none of it. "'Winter is coming,' he said, "'and our supplies are low. "'We cannot offer hospitality to guests just now, "'especially not guests who bring a corpse into our homes.' "'Please,' said Thorod, swallowing his pride to beg, "'we are exhausted. "'We cannot go further tonight.' "'Leave your corpse in that outer building,' said the leader gruffly. "'You can sleep in the hall. "'We have no meat to share with you.' "'Thorod's gut protested loudly, "'but there was nothing he could do.' They left the corpse chest where they had been told and settled down to sleep as best they could against the sounds of their rumbling stomachs. It was still twilight when the locals went to bed and slept much more soundly than their hungry guests. As he tossed and turned in the straw, Thorod heard a great clatter, followed by the sounds of someone moving about in the food preparation area. He nudged one of his house carls and whispered, "'I think someone is breaking into their food supplies.' We should chase them off, and perhaps they will let us have something to eat as a thank you. The young man nodded, and they crept together to the buttery. In the evening shadows, they could see a figure busy preparing meat on serving platters. It was a tall person with long, flowing hair. As she turned towards them, they realised it was a completely naked woman, and with horror, as she raised her face towards their torches, they recognised Thorgunna. Both beat a hasty retreat back to their bed straw and raised the others. No one spoke, but they hurried over to the chief and woke him too. As they all crept around her, watching, the naked corpse prepared the meat and brought it through to serve, gesturing to Thorod and his men that they should eat it. "'She is doing for us what you should have done,' said Thorod to the chief, gesturing to the food, and trying to resist the urge to shovel it into his desperate mouth as quickly as possible." "'We are in a poor state indeed if this corpse can give you better hospitality,' said the man sadly. He rolled his shoulders back and raised his head. "'You shall have meat,' he said. "'We will offer you food and comfort and anything else you might need. "'And we will sprinkle this place with holy water.' He looked meaningfully at the dead woman, standing by the meat platters and watching. "'You may eat this meat,' the corpse said suddenly. "'It is safe. "'These men are carrying out my wishes at great cost to themselves.' and God will reward them for it. For as long as all of my wishes are obeyed, there will be good times and plenty for Thorod and his people. With that, she returned to the corpse chest, 
and did not rise again. But Thorod felt a chill run over him as he pictured his wife snuggling down under her blood-red silken sheet. To be continued. Hi everybody, welcome back to Creepy Classics, uh, where I uh, retell and then have a chat about ancient, medieval and early modern ghost stories. So I started out this month, for obvious reasons, uh, looking into ghost stories associated with plague or infectious diseases. And so far I haven't had much luck finding any ghost stories associated with the very famous plagues, the Plague of Athens, the Black Death... The ones that immediately spring to mind, the Great Plague of London. Um, if anybody does know of any ghost stories um, associated with those, then let me know. Um, I could find modern ones in the sense of stories about the village of Eam, the plague village in England, things like that. But so far I haven't found any from the period. Uh, and that's really what I'm after, is stories that were written in the ancient medieval or early modern period. So please do um, get in touch. Uh, if you know of any, I'm on Twitter, at ClassicalJG. But what I did find um, was quite a strong connection between ghosts and infection in some Norse ghost stories, um, and particularly in the Icelandic sagas. So this story... now. Forgive me, I am going to mutilate the pronunciation of all of these words. This is from Erbigja Saga, uh, which is an Icelandic saga. Now, I do not read medieval Icelandic. Um, I read Greek and Latin and French and Old English. Uh, so most of the stories um, that I cover on the podcast, I can read in the original um this is not the case <laughs> for this one. I'm entirely reliant on English translation. Uh, and because I'm not familiar with the language, I have also anglicised all the names, um, mostly following the 19th century translation of this story and sort of guided primarily by um, my dim knowledge of Norse and Germanic languages. I have done some work on Beowulf. I am familiar with Old English. So sort of my knowledge of Old English and then, um, you know, we're on Lord of the Rings and the Marvel Cinematic Universe for my knowledge of Norse mythology. Um, <clears throat> so God knows whether my pronunciation of any of these names is recognisable to anyone Icelandic. And if you are Icelandic, I'm sorry. Uh, I did my best. <laughs> um, I've used chief as shorthand for community leaders because I don't know the Icelandic word um, for chieftains, leaders of the community. I can see the position clearly coming through in the text. There may also be some oddities and inaccuracies because this saga is written much, much later than when it's set. Um, so this particular saga was written around the early to mid 13th century, so somewhere between the 1220s and the 12th. 50s. It's set in the year 1000 CE. Uh, it is very specifically set um, in the year that Christ's faith was made law in Iceland, so the year that Christianity became the legal religion in Iceland. So that is 1000 CE. So it's been written several centuries after the time in which it is set. Now, 
for the most part, the writer is self-consciously setting this story in the past. Um, I have done some work on other poems, epic poems, that are set much earlier than they're written. Um, I've done work on the Homeric poems, the Iliad and the Odyssey, and on Beowulf. And in all those cases, the author makes effort to set the story in the past, to think about what life was like in the past. But the author will tend to describe their own society much more clearly than the past society. In the case of the Homeric poems, the physical objects largely match the Bronze Age when the poems are set, but the way the author writes about society reflects the Dark Ages when they're written down much more than the Bronze Age palace society. So there are probably a lot of oddities and inaccuracies creeping in that are also to do with the fact this is a 13th century writer writing a story set right at the beginning of the 11th century. The use of accents is just to distinguish between the characters. And again, I apologise to all of Scotland. Thorgunna <laughs> um, comes from what the Icelandic sagas call the South Islands, uh, which is the Hebrides, the Outer and Inner Hebrides in Scotland. Now, those are areas I am familiar with. Um, Obviously, to an English person, they are north. Um, so I gave Thorgan a, a Scottish accent. I didn't attempt to make it a particular region. Um, I will say that my mum and my family are Ulster Scots, so my Scottish accent is rather wobbly and slightly Irish. <laughs> um, the Sheffield accent that I used... Well, it's not really Sheffield. The Northern English accent that I used um, for the other chieftain is purely a Game of Thrones reference because I gave him the line winter is coming and it's really just to uh, give a bit of differentiation between the different characters uh, most of them I just used my own accent on since I have no idea um, how to do a medieval Icelandic accent so this is one of now again forgive the pronunciation one of the Islendigasugur I think I've got that right, genre of sagas. Um, these are sagas which tell stories about early settlers and colonists in Iceland. So Iceland starts to be colonised around the 800s CE. And these sagas tell stories around that period and then up to the Christianisation, um, starting with uh, missionaries around 998, 999, and then Christianity becoming law in 1000 and just a few years after that. A lot of these particular sagas are stories of um, sort of more realistic stories of everyday life among the colonies, of the relationships between the colonists. There's a lot about disputes between different settlements, different family trees. Um, but they do include supernatural stories as well. Uh, and this particular one, Erbigya Saga, has quite a lot of supernatural material. So I am adapting over the next three episodes the story of the hauntings at Frother. Um, what I'll do is I'll release part two, hopefully in a couple of weeks, and part three at the end of this month, because this is a really complicated story. It's quite long. It's got lots of different elements to it. There are loads of different kind of supernatural events um, that are part of this um, broader story of these hauntings at Frother that sort of start with Thorgunna and her arrival um, and come to an end sometime later. 
So I'm splitting it into three parts so that I can cover most of the material from this particular section. There is a whole nother ghost story earlier in Obigya Saga, um, which is even more famous than this one, uh, and which I'm not covering at all at the moment, uh, although I'm sure I will at some point. Scholars have argued a lot about the nature and origin of these sagas, basically whether they are essentially textual and literary or oral derived. So there's a question of whether these are an author sitting down with a bunch of texts, putting together different bits and pieces from the texts he is looking at and creating a literary work. Um, that would be more like the Roman epic The Aeneid by Virgil. Virgil has textual things in front of him like the poems of Homer um, and he creates an authored literary piece or if they're oral derived that would make them more like the Homeric poems uh, these are poems which the stories have been transmitted orally by bards over a period of centuries now the poems are too long to be performed in a single setting as we have them and this is one of the things that is brought up in the debate about the Icelandic sagas as well so this is something Homeric scholars are familiar with. You could not have an evening where one bard recites the whole of the Iliad. Uh, that would be impossible. You'd be there well into the next day. Homeric scholars tend to think that the poems represent what would have been lots of different um, bits of the story put together into one. And you can see in the Homeric poems where there's lots of different sections that could easily be performed by themselves. Um, the Aristia of Diomedes, which is about Diomedes going into battle and killing lots of people, could exist by itself. Um, the various adventures of Odysseus are often uh, retold by themselves or in small groups. So we think that they were transmitted orally, but then they were all collected together and written down um, by the person we refer to as Homer. Uh, and Beowulf, the old English poem, similarly, it's shorter than the Homeric poems, but it has three distinct parts. And the assumption is that, uh, again, it's oral tradition that has been collected together and put together into one story. Now, because I've done work on Homer and Beowulf... I automatically lean towards that interpretation of the Icelandic sagas. Now, again, I know nothing about the Icelandic sagas. I am not an expert and I really don't know enough to really have an opinion on it. Um, but coming from Homeric scholarship, that is my immediate instinct. And the way some of the characters are named with epithets definitely suggests that to me. Um, this is one of the characteristics of oral poetry. Uh, this was discovered by Milman Perry in the 1930s, um, looking at oral poets in uh, the Balkans, that they often compose as they go, within quite strict metres. So they have to play with words and language to make it fit the rhyme scheme and the metre of the poetry. So sometimes they will use the epithets to create the required number of syllables for a name. Um, so the epithets are those little descriptors that go with people. Um, Telamonian Ajax, uh, although that also just keeps him apart from the other Ajax. Um, Achilles is uh, swift-footed. Um, things like that. So in Erbigia Saga, we can see Thorgrima Witchface and Thoria Woodenleg. Um, names like that that can be included or left out where the poet needs or doesn't need to include them. 
Um, again, those suggest to me oral poetry, um, but not even being able to read the thing in its original language, I would not dare to kind of impose my opinion on anyone. One of the things that this has in common with Beowulf as well is that it is written by a Christian author and it's self-consciously set in the past. Now, in the case of Beowulf, it's set in the pagan past. In the case of this saga, it's set in the early days of Icelandic Christianity. So uh, Skullaholt would eventually become one of the two bishop seats in Iceland and Thorgunna has this uh, kind of... <laughs> divine foreknowledge um, that this is going to happen. It's not explained why or how she knows that. Um, but the later medieval author knows how important uh, the church there is. So he has Thorgunna taken to this very important Christian site. There are probably elements of older pagan mythologies in here, especially if they're oral derived poems. So they may have been pagan stories that are then Christianized once Christianity becomes the official religion and sort of Christianity is kind of forced <laughs> into them in some ways. The Christian elements will increase as we go on into parts two and three. We'll see that later parts of the story have very Christian morals and that Christianity becomes absolutely key to what the author is doing with this story. But there are so many different elements here. Some of them may have come from pre-Christian elements and some of these kind of odd bits of foreboding and supernatural events may have survived from earlier pagan versions. Um, I did add the section with Thorgrima touching Thorgunna's rake. Um, her insistence that no one else touch it is in the saga um, and I just kind of bumped up <laughs> that aspect of it by adding Thorgrima actually touching it. Uh, other than that, um, most of the kind of folklore elements I've taken straight from the saga. Um, so Thorgrima, uh, sorry, Thorgunna, everyone's name sounds the same, it's very confusing. Uh, not wanting anyone to touch her rake is from the saga. The rain, the, the rain blood, Thurid wanting to buy um, the bed gear, uh, and of course Thorgunna's instructions that it should be burned, um, which Thurid per persuades Thorod. Uh, not to obey. And I also obviously added my own touches. Occasionally the phrase thunderplump comes from my mum, who's Ulster Scots, so there may be a connection with Icelandic Norse people somewhere back in our history. Um, it's a, an expression describing a very short, very heavy uh, rainstorm, usually with thunder, that comes on really, really suddenly, doesn't last very long, absolutely drenches you, and then stops again very suddenly as well. I also gave Thorgunna two gold rings, where in the saga she only has one. Um, I was researching rings, looking for an historical gold ring that I could base the description on. I didn't find any individual ring that really matched what I needed, and I had a bit of trouble, couldn't really find much from Iceland. Uh, I'm just sort of not familiar enough with where to look for these things. Um, but looking through various museum websites, I did notice... Um, two clear styles that would have been around in this period. Twisted gold seems to have been a popular style for Viking rings, um, so sort of two bits of gold twisted around each other. Anglo-Saxon rings around this time uh, seem to have been quite popular to have a sort of fairly sort of fat uh, gold band with runes um, or occasionally uh, Latin inscribed around it. 
So basically, I gave her one of each, uh, mostly to demonstrate her wealth, to demonstrate that she has goods traded all around. The fact she has an English bedsheet is described in the saga, um, English obviously meaning Anglo-Saxon. Um, that I, I did take straight from the saga, so it's a reminder that she has goods that have been traded quite far, that she's quite wealthy. The idea that their two wedding rings just come straight from Outlander, because um, I've been on a major Outlander kick lately, so um, I decided to give her two rings and just have them be two wedding rings. Uh, the assumption being she said two husbands, who are presumably both dead. The saga doesn't mention either of her husbands. Uh, Thurid's first husband is a significant figure earlier in the saga, um, but uh, there's just not room for him in this one, so I have to come back to him another time. So... Icelandic ghosts, as you can see in this story, are much more physical and corporeal than typical continental European ghosts from this period, and certainly much more kind of physical and bodily um, than the dream ghosts you see in ancient literature. Um, all those ghosts that visit people in dreams uh, in ancient texts who you try to grasp them and they drift away and they float away. And there are ancient ghosts that are more physical and we will look at some of those, um, but it's less common. Icelandic ghosts, on the other hand, are nearly always, nearly always, they are very frequently physical. They are essentially revenants. You could call them zombies, except the word zombie calls to mind a whole bunch of other stuff <laughs> that doesn't really apply to them. Um, but revenants essentially um walking talking sometimes dead bodies <laughs> that is the most common form uh, of medieval icelandic ghost they're often in burial mounds in their own burial mounds and not very nice so if you think of the barrow whites from tolkien's the lord of the rings those are typical norse uh, and icelandic ghosts thulguna's quite unusual she's not in a barrow she hasn't even been buried yet and when she is um, she may not be buried in a barrow, uh, she's having a Christian burial, and she's being helpful. Um, Thorgunna is, as far as we can tell, an entirely benevolent ghost or revenant. Um, she is helping out the people who are carrying out her last wishes. The reason that I'm looking at this story at the moment is that these much more physical Icelandic ghosts can also sometimes be connected with the idea of infection. And this is something that hasn't come up too much in this story just yet, but will do as we go on into parts two and three. We'll see that the idea that contact with the ghost could infect the living is something that runs through this story. And this may be because these ghosts are so much more physical. Um, this may come from the idea that you know, a dead body might spread disease, um, that it could be dangerous to have much contact with a dead body. So because these are not spirit ghosts, because these are revenants or zombies or whatever you want to call them, they bring that danger of infection that a spirit, a vision in a dream doesn't bring. And that's why we're looking at Icelandic ghosts over the course of this month. I also had Thorgunna's ghost speak. She doesn't speak in the saga, um, but it was just the easiest way to get across the information that um, they ate the food and they didn't come to any harm. You know, it was fine. It, this isn't a story about eating food that's dangerous. Um, Thorgunna preparing the food for them is entirely a benevolent action and 
they, they don't have any problems from that, but of course a reminder that they have not obeyed all of her instructions and that that is going to cause them problems. So there is lots more to come from this story in parts two and three. Um, so I will leave it there other than to um, let you know some of the books I read while researching this. Now, this is completely new to me. So, so much reading. <laughs> I have been doing so much reading uh, on medieval Icelandic ghosts over the last couple of weeks. So I'm just going to give you a few highlights in case you're interested and you want to look into it yourself. Uh, the translation uh, of Erbigia Saga is available free online as the Saga of the Air Dwellers. It is an 1892 translation into English by William Morris and Erikir, don't know if I pronounce that right, Magnusson, uh, from the original Icelandic. And it is available online at the Icelandic Saga database. One of the most useful books that I read on this was the Routledge Research Companion to the Medieval Icelandic Sagas, edited by uh, Arman and Sverre Jakobsen. Uh, this is available as an ebook from Amazon. Obviously, everything that I have read for this, I have had to be able to find online or in an ebook. Again, for obvious reasons, if you're listening to this in the far distant future, it is April 2020 right now. Um, we're all stuck in our houses, uh, or rather, we're all staying in our houses for the good of mankind in general. So, everything has to be an ebook or something available online. Um, so that one is available as an ebook from Amazon. Really, really useful introduction um, to the sagas and to scholarship on the sagas. I've also been reading Troublesome Corpses, Vampires and Revenants from Antiquity to the Present by David Keyworth. That's also available as an ebook from Amazon. And from JSTOR, that's Journal Storage. It's a huge database of academic journals. Um, I used many articles from JSTOR, but very, very useful in particular was Vampires and Watchmen, Categorising the Medieval Icelandic Undead, again by Armin Jakobsen, uh, and that was in the Journal of English and Germanic Philology, volume 110. And I looked at countless travel websites describing Iceland. I have been to both the Inner and Outer Hebrides, I've been to Scotland, I've been to Ireland, obviously, many times. Uh, I have not been able to visit Iceland, and I'm very uncomfortable writing fiction set somewhere I've never visited so I've spent hours um, reading physical descriptions of Iceland um, several blogs lots of museum websites describing medieval daily life uh, particularly I want to give a shout out to the British Museum which has just revamped its online catalogue uh, obviously the museums are all closed um, the physical buildings are all closed at the moment a lot of them are putting loads of stuff online uh, and the rings, the description of the rings comes from the collections at the British Museum, several different uh, Anglo-Saxon and Viking gold rings that formed the basis for those descriptions. So I hope you enjoyed part one. Um, this is obviously new for me to do something in multiple parts. So with any luck, you're excited for parts two and three. Um, which I say, plan is that they will both follow uh, later this month. And then we'll get back to the ancient world um, after that. So stay safe, everybody. Stay well. Uh, and hopefully um, I will be back in a couple of weeks with the next instalment. Creepy Classics is written and performed by Juliet Harrison. Music composed and performed by Ed Harrison. It's produced by Juliet Harrison 
with assistance from Newman University.